Welcome to the Preservation Technology Podcast, the show that brings you the people and projects that are advancing the future of America's heritage. I'm Kevin Ammons with the National Park Service's National Center for Preservation Technology and Training. In this edition of the podcast, we join NCPTT's Jeff Buen as he speaks to Jill Gotthelp, coordinator of an NCPTT-sponsored workshop at the Association for Preservation Technology Conference. That interview is followed by a conversation with John Anderson, who spoke on integrating sustainability in preservation. Principal at Walter Sedevic Architects, and I'm co-chair of the EPT Technical Committee on Sustainable Preservation, and I'm a preservation architect. Tell me a little bit more about that committee and why it uh, chose to hold this particular session. The Technical Committee on Sustainable Preservation um, began out of a Halifax symposium um, where we realized that that there was a growing concern about sustainability from a holistic perspective, um, not just energy and environment, but also community and social equity, and how our um, heritage buildings played into this movement, and and what we should and shouldn't do, um, as well as the issues of of climate change and the impact they're having on our buildings and it was really a very widespread look at our heritage buildings and issues of sustainability and environmentalism and from that um, over the the years the committees looked at addressing issues from rating systems to to climate change um, education preservation programs in the schools and are they addressing issues of sustainability and now we've, we've also um, moved into focus of, of policy. And there was a symposium in Montreal that addressed theoretical issues. And over the last two years since that, we realized that we at APT um, have a specific expertise in technology and in the technical end of these issues. And looking at all the organizations that have been working on sustainability, there's other organizations who really are public policy organizations and addressing many of those concerns and that we really needed to focus on some of the technical issues so we could offer our expertise to the entire field um, addressing sustainability. And with the, um, the coming out of all of these new codes, especially the the upcoming International Green Construction Code, uh, we realized that many of the concerns dealt with energy and and our envelopes. And we, you know, deep down in our hearts know that historic buildings are not the energy hogs that they're made out to be and the advantages of thermal lag and that buildings built before World War II had to address environmental issues because we couldn't design the environment out of our building. And that they really did most of what these codes and lead and all of the rating systems were asking for um, already. And it's just they've been maligned or they've been altered. These systems have been taken out. People don't understand how they work. And so one of the the things we wanted to address is, is 
envelope modeling and um, monitoring and performance of our existing buildings um, to get real data that show how our buildings work. Um, modeling of new buildings, we're finding buildings are modeled and then they don't perform the way they're modeled to be. We with historic buildings have the advantage that we have real buildings that we can go out and actually do real models based on performance testing. And so the decision was that now was the time for a two-day workshop um, to discuss what tests are available for historic buildings, what information can we get and show, and then how can that information be transferred into a model so that we can generate data that we can take to explain how our historic buildings work, what systems um, are in place, what happens once those, those originally designed systems are restored, how does the building perform by itself, and now what intervention really is necessary. And, and you'll find that the designs of the systems vary greatly when you really understand actual performance and then design an intervention rather than a model. And uh, you actually used a real-world setting, a historic building, for part of the workshop. Tell me about that. Yeah, we, um, we used the Central Presbyterian Church here in Denver. Um, that was an ideal building because it's a historic masonry church with a 1960s, 70s cavity wall addition. And we were able to both model the, the cavity wall addition and the historic portion of the church and look at the differences and how the two perform and the different decisions that you'd need to make based on the two different um, building construction types. And there was a, a series of pre-testing that was done about a month ago so that we had a baseline testing as well as doing the hands-on um, testing at the workshop so that we had a report of the testing to discuss at the workshop as well as to physically do the hands-on testing. Um, and that included looking at, this was a, a building where the original passive system had been closed up. And we looked at, at how the building was performing now with that and then discussed from, from our knowledge of how the system um, originally worked this, you know, whole chimney effect and, and reopening of the passive ventilation system, what would be gained by restoring the original system and whether that's a better solution or, or a newer intervention. Okay. Well, what were your findings? Well, um, interestingly enough, our findings were, were actually giving us real data for what we already knew about how thermal lag works and and based on modeling of looking at historic buildings and and then modeling how um, the heat transferred through the building we've actually started to look at putting insulation on as being a disadvantage not just from what we already knew about creating dew points of moisture but that it also um, didn't allow that additional heat to transfer into the space it didn't allow us to gain the, the um, advantage from the thermal lag that, that we had naturally. And so it, it gave us a better understanding of what we already knew, how, how these buildings performed, in a way that we then could bring it on to our building stewards and, and rather than just trusting us, they could actually see okay. the data. Well, stepping back a second, you mentioned that this was um, at least in part a hands-on experience. Uh, mm -hmm. Talk about that. What were the participants allowed to use the different types of equipment and things? In the church, we actually um, had blower door um, set up for the for the participants to work through, and they they watched the the setup of the blower door, um, an explanation of the fans, how um, we pressurize or depressurize the building um, through turning the fans on, 
having having the system work and then walked through um, with smoke so that we were able to identify locations where there were drafts um, as well then um, there was equipment for doing um, thermal performance for doing uh, was that the little handheld that was the little handheld yeah, yeah. camera that then was passed around and everyone was able to see um, being that this is in October um, the results on that would not be as dramatic unless you were hitting a part of a building that happened to have, you know, the heat on and, and, and steam. Whereas on a really cold day um, in the winter, you would see greater differential or a really hot day in the middle of the summer, you would see a greater um, thermal differential when we went and tested okay. all the walls. But it, it gave a relative understanding of one surface to another surface. And, and that's been a discussion throughout this workshop that um, all of our testing devices have reached a certain point of accuracy. You know, they will continually grow to become more accurate and there's a certain amount of user failure and certain amount of um, changes in levels of accuracy depending on, on the sophistication of the equipment used. But every one of them are good tools for relative performance and understanding because if you're using the same tool in one place and another place, um, your relative performance is still the same even if it's actual physical number that it's reading out is not. Okay. Well, uh, tell me about some of the other folks that were involved in, in helping instruct the workshop. Um, we have a, a range of instructors that include our leader in the hands-on testing is with a company here in Denver that's lightly treading and they go in and do um, energy audits and evaluation and testing. Mm -hmm. um, they themselves are not um, trained architects, engineers in developing the new systems to make changes, um, they, they are very well versed in collecting the data and, and the, analyzing the performance of the building and developing an instruction on key areas where efficiencies can be added. We added to that um, several engineers ranging from structural engineers, mechanical engineers, um, and um, engineers that are also working in the energy modeling field who then have been able to show us how that information that we gathered can be put into models and analyzed, can make um, informed decisions in our um, evaluation of cost benefits and life cycle cost analysis, and then can also discuss the pros and cons of making those decisions, um, understanding holistically how the building systems work, um, making certain changes are going to have impacts on other decisions that you make. So, so we, we've really had a nice range. You recorded the workshop uh, on video and you're going to do something with that as well. Tell me about that. Yes. Um, this workshop um, is for CEU credits for the, from the American Institute of Architects and the NEEC. Um, S, which is the engineering and the Ontario architects. So um, it, it offered a full range of CEU credits. The entire workshop was videotaped um, from a grant from NCPTT, which we will take the two days and condense it into a one-hour learning module that we would like to then make available to outside of APT as a, as a learning module that can basically be an on-the-road um, learning module.
Hi, my name is John Anderson. I'm currently an instructional engineer at Robert Silman Associates in New York City. My background is focused on sustainable building. So I've done a master's degree at UC Berkeley where I focused on sustainable concrete technologies. And then before that, I was a Fulbright Fellow in Berlin at the TU University, the Technical University there, where I looked at the interlap between sustainability architecture, sustainability engineering, and how that forms sustainable design. So that's really where I'm coming from. Today you were speaking at the uh, APT conference in Denver about putting sustainability into preservation. Tell me a little bit about that. Exactly. So the general idea with the preservation community currently is that preservation is sustainable. End of story. But what we're really trying to do is move sustainability into preservation so that preservation is can move from being a passive participant in the sustainability design movement to really being leaders. And then by being leaders, we can illustrate that historic buildings, historic neighborhoods have a lot to teach new buildings and have a lot to teach policymakers. So when policy members, administrations think about they want to do green building, they'll look to preservation for guidance. Okay. And one of the things that you're involved with, you have been involved with, is uh, the Picantico. Uh, summit on sustainability. Uh, tell me about that experience and what came out of it. Yeah, the Pecanico Proclamation started by a group of 28 experts from different fields, from architects to engineers to business people to environmentalists, anyone who's affected by green building and who has an interest in this. And we really sat down and thought about how does preservation interlap and play a role with sustainability. And then we also thought about where are some conflicts there and how can we address those conflicts. Okay. And, well, let's talk about those. One of the things that you mentioned in your talk earlier was uh, imperatives coming out of that. Uh, tell me about those imperatives. Exactly. So the background and the argument that we're really forming to make this case for green design, for sustainability, are the climate change uh, imperative, the economic imperative, uh, and to explain the climate change is pretty straightforward, the economic imperative is really changing to a green economy. So moving away from resource dependent, um, non-renewable fuels and building practices to renewable practices to practice of conservation. And the last one's equity. As we see the world transform in the last 10 years moving forward, we're seeing that more people have a higher standard of living and then that's requiring more resources. So we need to think about, especially here in the U.S., how can we get more from less? Okay. And uh, you also mentioned principles coming out of the initiative. Talk about the principles. Yeah. So exactly, the, the principles are really lessons that can be learned from preservation and applied to green building. So these are examples foster culture of reuse. Uh, we currently have a culture of, of new, of consumption. Um, so we can transfer to an idea of reusing something, valuing something, and seeing the bigger picture in something. Um, and one of the other big interesting thing is to update the sustainability aspects of preservation. So like we were saying before, that preservation really doesn't shy away from sustainability, but really grabs onto it and takes a lead and leads the movement. Following uh, Picantico and um, the, the proclamation, there was a follow-up uh, meeting as well called the Nashville Challenge. Uh, tell me a little bit about that experience. Yeah. So the Pecanico laid out the, the essential principles and guidelines and the imperatives for integrating sustainability and preservation. And then we took it another step and really refined it. And we said, okay, we have all these sustainability concerns, economic, environmental, social. Let's focus on the most pressing right now, and that's climate change. 
So it's not everything, but we're just focusing on one task. And then the question really is, it's really one statement. How can preservation align with climate mitigation strategies? It's very, very definitive and very, very, uh, very clear what the goal is. Okay. And then what we're looking for is there, how can that come about? How can we realize this, this objective? Have, have you made any progress in figuring that out? Well, it's, it's obviously a big challenge, but I think what we've been doing, and we're, we're essentially an advisory board to other organizations, and other organizations participate with us. But what's come out of this is there, had, there has been legislation written that's been proposed to the House, um, and in manners like this, there have been means with the DOE, the Department of Energy, the Environmental Protection Agency. So really taking our message to policymakers and saying, hey, look, Preservation is uh, a way to reduce climate change, and we need to address this. Are you learning any lessons from the environmental movement and implementing policy? I think one lesson we can really learn is we talk about existing buildings. Existing buildings emit 40% of the CO2 emissions in the U.S., but historic buildings, you know, buildings that are listed on landmark registries, are very small. It's 1% in New York City. Mm -hmm. So if you have 1%, you can't make a big you can't make a big change. But if the preservation movement went beyond museum-type buildings, one-of-a-kind vernacular buildings, to really being the spokesperson for all existing buildings, then we've really taken a big branch. We said, we are the people that care for buildings. We know how to maintain buildings. We know how to increase the longevity of buildings. And then we have a big area to contribute. And then people come to us to say, can you help us with this problem? Absolutely. Well, you talked about action items and the steps that we go through to actually start influencing policy. Tell me about those. The big one that, that we've been thinking about, and it's a personal interest of mine, is research. Because I think a lot of people that are enacting green initiatives, green goals, so anyone from the presidential administration to localities such as New York City, Michael Bloomberg, these people are interested in achieving these environmental goals. And I think what they don't have now that they could use are tools to help them see that existing buildings are a key in that solution. So I don't think people are excluding existing buildings right now. People just aren't, they don't have the data available to show that these are the areas that one really should be focusing on. And you're talking about the, the action items and research. Uh, you mentioned Secretary of Interior Standards as well. That's being a place to start to, to look at those again and um, figure out how to use what's existing but also maybe change that a little bit exactly. and focus it. Yeah. Any ideas there? So we really have two, two challenges. One's an external communication, the preservation community communicating with other people doing green building, mm -hmm. and the second one's an internal. How does the preservation community deal with challenges such as uh, window replacement, operational energy improvement? And these are really dealt with traditionally through the, the National Park Service standards and guidelines. And what we really see a need for is guidance from such an overarching body to really provide guidance on that. So if a homeowner that's interested in preservation and interested in sustainability can have some place to go to and really get some knowledge from that perspective. So um, one of the things that I think I'm hearing you say uh, is that communication is a big part of it and changing perceptions, uh, as you said, internally and externally and on a broader scale. How are some of the ways that we could do that? Yeah, these are great points. And I think a lot of it's just talking to people. So I think it's, it's moving beyond just preservation is talking to themselves. I gave a talk recently to the U.S. Green Building Council, and there we were essentially saying that 
you know, reusing a building is recycling a building. And one of my friends went to the talk, and she's open to these ideas, and she's green, green friendly. And she said, I had never thought about that. Mm -hmm. And now, essentially, she's on board with us. So I think it's just presenting the idea to people in an objective, fair manner with data and research that shows that we're not just pushing a different agenda, but it's really the case at hand. And I think that helps bring people on board. You're, what you're saying is that if we can explain exactly what's happening to these folks mm -hmm. and meet them where they are, then we have a much better chance at influencing, having their support and influencing mm -hmm. these policies. Yeah, and we can see this through examples. When you're thinking about urban planning, you think about the real goal now with the new urbanist movement is to build livable, sustainable communities where you have grocery shop, mom and pop shops, you have restaurants, you can walk everywhere. Mm -hmm. Where are these ideas coming from? These ideas are coming from historic districts. Historic districts are doing them now. Well, the problem is historic districts aren't selling themselves or branding themselves in that manner in flight. So it's really an idea of perspectives and, and really seeing where these new ideas are coming from. And often we see they're coming from the past. So the past is looking forward. Mm -hmm. Excellent. And one of the things that I heard you mention is um, actually harnessing the power of the web and that we have the ability now to communicate to everyone in the world, potentially, you know, with an internet connection and influence those folks, too. Uh, what are some of the ways that you would recommend? Yeah, I think that's great. I think that's really a useful dialogue, communication. And I think what we can do, we can get a lot of information out to people. You know, we can put something up about replacement windows, you know. Um, we can have dialogue and forum discussions online, and then a lot of resources. You know, if somebody needs resources to make their case, if somebody's saying, well, I think this whole building has some value, and I want to go talk to somebody that's in charge about this, how do I do that? How do I have the information to share this with other people without having to do a doctoral dissertation on embodied energy? And just important, as important to that, it, it, besides just putting the information out, is to be able to interact about right. it and, and have a conversation about it rather than just saying these are the rules, exactly. follow them or else. And yeah. that, uh, that's, I think that's traditionally what people get in their minds about historic preservation is that mm -hmm. they're just telling folks what to do, but mm -hmm. they don't feel that they have a part in it or exactly. they can be part of that conversation. That's a great point. Preservation is really about the community and preserving the community. And the community is made up of different people doing different actions. And then that's what really creates the community around them. And I think that's what historic preservation tries to promote. Absolutely. Okay, and um, just to follow up with uh, the initiatives that you've been involved with, you talked about the Contico and um, the Nashville Challenge. There was a group that actually came out of this effort as well that you're a part of. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that. Yeah, so we, we from Nashville, we, we drafted an agenda, an action item agenda. And this became the Sustainability and Preservation Policy Task Force, or SPITFIRE for short. Mm -hmm. um, and then this, goal, this is essentially an advisory council to other organizations working on issues of sustainability and preservation. So we provide guidance on uh, implementing sustainability into preservation and also as a forum for feedback and holding organizations accountable when we're saying we want to do these things, we're really there to, to help people achieve the goals and really move forward in the process. What are some of the organizations that you've worked with to try to advise? Yeah, so we, I mean, we're National Trust for Historic Preservation has, has been with us from the start. Uh, Friends at NCPTT has been from the start. And then also APT's involved, AIA's involved, and we have the American Council for Historic Preservation. So we really have everyone that's involved, uh, national SHPOs, 
So everyone that's really involved in preservation is getting this picture, and this is really a, a place to come for assistance and guidance. Okay. So if um, someone wants to find out more about Spitfire or the Sustainability Initiative, um, how can they get in touch? Mm -hmm. So either on the, the NCPT website or on the National Trust website. Okay. Excellent. Well, John, thank you so much. Thank you very much for the time. All right. That was Jeff Guin with Jill Gotthelf and John Anderson. If you would like to learn more about NCPTT's sustainability efforts, visit our podcast show notes at the National Center for Preservation Technology and Training website. That's ncptt.nps.gov. Until next time, goodbye, everybody. <laughs>